Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. You wrote to me once, listing the four chief virtues. Wisdom, justice, fortitude, and temperance. As I read the list, I knew I had none of them. That's Joaquin Phoenix and Ridley Scott's Oscar-winning Gladiator. The actor and director have teamed up again for Napoleon, which is currently playing in wide release. Napoleon is, meh, we'll get to that on a future show. This week, it's the best of Phoenix and Scott. Our Sacred Cow review of 1979's Alien and the top five Joaquin Phoenix performances. It's all ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. Technically, Josh, this is a week off for us, but we did a little digging in the Film Spotting archives and found a good pairing inspired by the new Napoleon, which reteams director Ridley Scott and best actor of his generation candidate, Joaquin Phoenix. We've been around a long time. No, we don't go quite all the way back to 2000's Gladiator. The show was just a glimmer in Commodus's eye. Yeah, exactly. Napoleon. I think it's safe to say, I mean, I've seen your star rating. It didn't knock either of us out. Yeah, I mean, I might go a little more than meh, but we'll get into that later next week. Okay. I don't know that we really need to get into it next week. Have you seen my letterbox review by chance? Have you seen the likes piling up? Uh, no, I, I don't keep track of your likes on Letterboxd. Mm. Um, well, I, the, I just thought you could The star rating, I, I do recall <laughs> it was quite a bit lower than mine. I'm trying to remember if it was... One or two? No, no, not one. But it wasn't. I one. did. Oh. I did. <laughs> okay. I came in at. I came in at two. I did consider a two and a half. I came in at two. But you know, I don't want to sound like a clout chaser here, Josh. But normally on Letterbox, my reviews get anywhere from five to fifty likes. There are a few that pop off every now and again, but five to fifty is a pretty good range. Since I published Napoleon, I'm racking up about three hundred a day. Well, congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, Thank did you. you come in hot? What was what was the what did you feed the masses no, to go just, viral, to go letterbox pithy viral? And, pithy and clever. All you right. should try it sometime, John. <laughs> yeah. We'll see if I can go to a workshop for that. <laughs> this week we've got our 2019 Sacred Cow review of Sir Ridley's Alien. That one we did both like. 
a lot. And from earlier this year, our top five Joaquin Phoenix performances. Was that a tie-in with Bo is Afraid? I don't know about you, not going to be in my top 10. Uh, not mine either, though I also think I liked it more than you. Yes. I feel like that might have been a tie-in with our Sacred Cow review of her, possibly? Anniversary Maybe. review, I'm well, thinking? Well, that was just a bonus show, though, Josh. Mm, okay. All right. Maybe it was Bo is Afraid, then. Yeah. First, we wanted to talk a bit about our upcoming live show in Los Angeles. I know we announced it last week, but we are officially on sale, Josh. Right now, the show is coming up Saturday, January 13th. It will be our annual wrap party. So we're going to share our favorite movie moments of the year, right? Opening scene, music moment, moving moment, funniest moment. I think I've got all of them right. We end it all with scene of the year. I'm going to be there. You're going to be there. Sam, our producer, will be there. Michael Phillips is going to be there. Coming on out, just saw Michael today, and we were chatting about this trip. We're both very excited. I'm just, also at this point, it's relief. I mean, there was more drama behind the scenes, back and forth, about <laughs> whether while. this would happen than, you know, a, a prestige picture begging for Oscar attention. Uh, but we pulled it off. We set the date. It's going to happen on the 13th. Cannot wait to get out to L.A. in the sunshine. I mean, I had I had stocked up on the sunscreen. I had bought the rollerblades. I think I even picked up a visor. And for a while, I was thinking, do I have to return all of this? No, it's good. We're going to be there January 13. We're in a great venue, Regal LA Live, right in the heart of downtown LA. This film spotting wrap party is brought to you by Regal and Regal Unlimited, the all-you-can-watch movie subscription pass that pays for itself in just two visits. You can see any standard 2D movie anytime with no blackout dates or restrictions. And with Regal Unlimited, you won't just save money on tickets. You also save on snacks. Members get 10% off all non-alcoholic concession items. You can sign up now in the Regal app or over at regmovies.com slash unlimited. We also have a link to that sign up over at filmspotting.net where you can get tickets for this live show. Filmspotting.net right there on the main page or filmspotting.net slash events. Josh is where you can get all the info you need and where you can purchase those tickets. We do, as we have offered recently with these live events, we have a meet and greet opportunity before the show starts. You get guaranteed seating, pick out your seat before the general admission crowd. You also get to just mingle, have a drink or two with me and you and Sam and Michael and any other guests we bring along. It's always a good time. Oh, it really is. And at this point, having done a number of these, some familiar faces we see, people have been to a couple of live shows and come to the meet and greet, but welcome for new people as well. Would love to meet some first-time live show folks at January's event. Filmspotting.net, once again, is where you can get those tickets. Let's go ahead and get to that Sacred Cow review of Ridley Scott's Alien. We took a look at that horror masterpiece upon its 40th anniversary. Dallas, are you sure there is no sign of it? I mean, it is there. It's got to be around there. Dallas? All right. Uh, am, I, am I Claire Lambert? I want to get the hell out of here. There's a single image from 1979's Alien that serves as the perfect visual metaphor for the entire movie, Adam. At the point I'm thinking of, the title creature is trapped in the air ducts of the Nostromo, the commercial towing vessel where most of the movie is set. Dallas, the ship's captain, played by Tom Skerritt, crawls in after it, hoping to finish it off with a flamethrower. 
The image I'm thinking of is the hatch to the air duct, which closes behind him in the shape of a metallic spiral so that our circular view of him gets smaller and smaller until it shuts completely and he effectively disappears. This, in essence, is what Alien does to us. It constricts and constricts in terms of narrative and use of screen space until we're face-to-face with a monster. Now, the first time I saw Alien, this left me breathless. But how does it work on a second or perhaps a third or fourth viewing? Taking another look for this Sacred Cow review of the sci-fi classic, Adam, did familiarity with the movie's narrative and technique lessen the intensity of the experience, or did your appreciation for the film only grow, like a cute little xenomorph freshly exploded from the chest of its human carrier? Yeah, I'll go that way. Okay, It was definitely the latter. I think my appreciation for the movie did grow, and you're absolutely right in terms of that moment being a really good one where you're just keenly aware, too, that he is probably not coming back. There's just something really dreadful about when that hatch closes and he is trapped in that air duct. It's been the trend. Yeah, it absolutely has. And that sense of claustrophobia, you're right, is a key part of this film really from the very beginning. And I want to go back to the very beginning of the movie because it has not only a great opening, it has a great opening credit sequence, Josh, right? Where we see the letters alien spelled out as... So slowly. Yeah, so slowly, just coming to life, forming before us just as the camera is panning and we're seeing this X-moon or whatever that the xenomorph comes from. These letters revealing themselves that way really does set up the entire movie because this is a film that is going to take its time revealing to you ultimately what kind of film it is. And of course, as well, which we'll talk about who the hero of the movie is. And after we get done with that opening credit sequence, we get a shot that feels like it was lifted right out of the beginning of Star Wars, right? And this movie, of course, following right in the wake of Star Wars, any film that is certainly set in space, a sci-fi movie like this, is going to have to reckon with that in some way. And so we get that shot, that famous shot, from the underbelly of this large cargo ship as it goes by. And audiences, very familiar, as almost anyone would have been at this time with Star Wars, may have felt like, oh, maybe we're in for another movie like that. Mm -hmm. And of course, what Ridley Scott, I think, whether it was conscious or not, it's a nice little subversion of your expectations because everything that follows ultimately shows you that this is not going to be Star Wars at all. It's not going to be fantasy. It's not really even going to be spectacle. And from there, we then get the camera as it moves, that long shot of the camera roaming through the corridors of the Nostromo. And I actually watched this opening sequence just three or four times on Blu-ray after I watched the film in its entirety again, just because I enjoy watching the opening so much. I love the way... The camera almost seems like a probe that has been sent to this ship to capture footage from the site of a disaster, maybe. It's as if it's already an abandoned ship, that it's haunted, that something has gone horribly wrong. And so it immediately piques our curiosity. There's this inherent sense of mystery and then ultimately a sense of discovery. You're looking for whatever is going to be around every corner. And those little touches, the rustling of papers as the camera goes by, or on the table at one point, there are these two figurines that kind of bobble with motion. It's this sense that this place has been lived in. Yeah, there's a human touch, even though we see no humans. Exactly. And so it makes you wonder, is this place inhabited by ghosts? There's just something off about it. And of course, as you move through those corridors, too, it's not like Star Wars. It's not like 2001, the vision Kubra gave us, where the corridors aren't sleek. The spaceship doesn't feel really clean and maybe 
futuristic as we have come to envision it, it feels used, right? It feels not only rustic, but there's actual rust on the metal that makes up these corridors. And the more I watched it, the more I realized just how long and seemingly endless the corridors felt, but they are really tight. Again, going back to Star Wars or 2001, where Darth Vader steps on the ship and it feels like you have these vast spaces. There's a certain vastness to the length of it, which actually just makes it feel even more imposing and heightens that sense of dread because you just have no idea what is out there. But when they're in those spaces, they are really confined by that space. And even when we finally meet the characters, and I love the fact that we're introduced to them over a dinner scene, and Mm -hmm. it casually throws us in. Even there, I noticed how often, and throughout the rest of the film, you see this too, how often we see these characters in close-up. There really isn't a sense of them ever pinned against this vast landscape the way Ridley Scott does, I think, to really good effect, actually, in Prometheus. But here, he's going for something completely different. There's always equipment, like, hanging over them. It's yeah. it's like a submarine, really, is the feeling that you get. Mm-hmm. I will say that I think Star Wars shares with this the lived-in feel, though. I mean, there are the, – the ship you're mentioning – in the very beginning of Star Wars has that clean look, not the Empire, but a lot of the other places we go and ships we see have this same lived-in feel. So I do like that. And I think also, I'm sure we'll get to this at some point, but what Alien shares in common with Star Wars is just fantastic creature design and Mm -hmm. shows you how important it is to do that well. I'm glad you started with that opening because one of the triumphs of this film is also its production design. And that's what really stood out to me this time. I don't know. I guess maybe I'm just instinctually a narrative guy. When I see films for the first time, I clue into the story and I'll notice things about production design, but often it's not until I go back and can let the story run around in the back of my head and look at more of the details that I'll see some of these things. And man, what you're talking about in the opening is so crucial. Uh, We should probably say that Michael Seymour was the production designer here. He was nominated for an Oscar, but that's You know, the spiral hatch I talked about has everything to do with that. Mm -hmm. That's an element of production design. There is um, that 2001-like communication center where they talk to Mother, the AI program running Mm -hmm. the ship. That's so different from the rest of it, right? It's white. It has the little bulbs of light all over it, and Mm -hmm. I love that contrast. And the tiny little screens. Yep, yep. And that sequence when they wake up from their hypersleep chambers or whatever they are, it adds to what you were talking about in this sense of emptiness in the ship and who who works here, who's been here. And when those oblong egg-like contraptions open very egg like what it does is it makes the humans seem like the aliens like they're emerging and it's just another early way we're put off center mm-hmm. in this film to unsettle us and okay what are what are these shapes coming out well well that looks human and it's not until really they all start coming out of their sleep and fall into their more recognizably human activities like sharing a meal that we start to feel a little bit comfortable, like, okay, we've got our bearings now. And of course, after that, things just go crazy. Exactly. And you're right about that sequence where they emerge, and John Hurt is the first character we see emerge. He plays Kane, who, of course, is going to famously meet a very tragic end later in the film. But that's another one that I rewound and watched over and over again because it almost catches you off guard. When you first see the camera, again, roaming the corridors, it stops on the door, the door opens, and it's dark inside. And you're trying to make out 
a visual of what's inside there. And I had something completely different in my head from what then ultimately emerged in the light, which is these pods. And then you get this kind of quick dissolve as it actually changes the camera angle because when it's coming into the room, it's not on John Hurt, I don't believe. But then all of a sudden it is on John Hurt. So we moved the camera angle with this dissolve. And as he emerges, you're right, it adds to the sense, as you said, of something being alien with them. And as we get to that sequence, that's just another one of those little touches that Ridley Scott and the screenwriter Dan O'Bannon here gets so right, is we meet them as characters, and we meet them as an ensemble in that dinner scene. We ultimately learn all the basics of their character, as we're going to see play out over the course of the film, through that conversation and in their interactions with each other. And I love that they give us that moment in a way that makes it about that ensemble and makes it about them as characters. It's not about plot. It's not about setting up the story at all, but it is about giving us that background ultimately to who they are. Still with us, Brett? Right. Yeah. Oh, I feel dead. Anybody ever tell you you look dead? <laughs> oh, yeah, right. I just forgot something, man. Uh, before we dock, I think we ought to discuss the bonus situation. Right. Brett and right. I, we think we ought to... We deserve full shares, right, right baby? You see, Mr. Park and I feel that the bonus situation has never been on a, an equitable level. Well, you get what you contracted for like everybody else. Yes, but everybody else uh, gets more than us. Oh, mother wants to talk to you. And we instantly understand the dynamic among all of them. You have... Yafet Koto and Harry Dean Stanton as sort of the grunts who work down below and they're arguing about getting more pay, their mm-hmm. share. They, there's a class system at work sure. that is part of the more thematic interests in the movie. And it's so elegantly laid out how that structure is in place and where the tension points are. And of course, that comes into play later at crucial moments when rank is pulled or not pulled. Yeah. And that all adds to the tension and the suspense as well. It does, definitely. And let's talk a little bit about its themes or what the movie is about. I don't know how much that really did factor into your viewing or your pleasure viewing this film, but we've already mentioned 2001 or I have a few times and we talked about Star Wars. It's hard not to watch this film and think about those movies. And of course, think about all the films that have followed Alien, some within its own franchise that are so beholden and owe so much to this film because we've seen so many elements that were done first here and really probably done best in Ridley Scott's film. But of course, at its core, if you're a fan of John Carpenter's The Thing, I believe from 1982, you'll think, boy, these films are awfully similar. And of course, that film followed this movie a few years later. But the original, the John Carpenter film is based on the Howard Hawks film, The Thing from Another World from 1955. So it's the same basic storyline of an isolated group that comes upon Mm -hmm. an alien creature that is determined to survive that's all its objective really is and it's going to do it by taking out these characters one at a time each movie even has a similar character that gets it in the form of the kurt russell character in the carpenter version and of course sigourney weaver here is ripley but maybe because 2001 was a movie i just recently saw at the music box at the 70 millimeter film festival that it was so much in my mind but one little adjustment that i saw this film make from 2001 setting up nicely Aliens. And of course, Aliens is in my head as well. We know the sequel and what James Cameron does with the material is this movie is one where it's not about the machine or technology being 
ultimately responsible for the downfall of these characters. There's no doubt that Ash, played wonderfully by the great British actor Ian Holm, oh, yeah. is certainly on some level a villain. I'm not denying that. And you can understand her distrust, Ripley, her distrust for any non-human crew member that we see play out in the movie Aliens. But ultimately, he's just following orders, right? Even Mother, the master computer here, is just following orders. And I mentioned those tiny little screens. There's something actually in the way I think Ridley Scott tries to downplay the all-powerful technology, because unlike the menacing red dot that seems all-powerful in HAL, this is just this tiny little screen that just gives us the little green data. It's a tool of others. That's it. It's exactly right. And Mother is programmed, ultimately, by the corporation, just like Ash was. So, not to belabor it, but even in 2001, of course, there is a group of people who have told Hal what the mission is and have decided to leave the crew in the dark. But I think there, there's more of a sense of the people responsible being genuinely curious about the monolith and what's going on by Jupiter. It's not so much about trying to exploit anything for capitalistic well, and, or military gains. And there's the question of if Hal has evolved no, in that film. No, so. you're absolutely right. And of course, there's also a question of whether or not the fact that they program him to keep a secret is in fact what kind of undoes him so mother is just doing what mother has been programmed to do ash is just doing what ash has been programmed to do so it's not as blatantly satirical or as anti-corporate as aliens is we don't have a burke character like paul riser here that you just really hate you come to feel that way a little bit about ash certainly but the movie seems to be really just setting up In retrospect, you can look at it in 1979 and see it as a film that seemed to presage in some way the me decade of the 80s without hitting you over the head with it. Aliens hits you over the head with it and I think does it in a good way. I love that film, too. But this is a movie that's just subtly kind of setting that up. And really, besides the anti-corporate notion here to the film, the tale at its core is as old as time. It's about hubris, right? It's about man's desire and ultimate futility at its inability to control nature. That really is what is at the core of this movie. And I think that's even why we feel a little bit of maybe sympathy is the wrong word as we learn more about Ash. But there's a sense of before we really know that he's complicit in not caring about the downfall of the other crew members, we see him as potentially a man of science. And we understand that what he's doing may have a purpose and may may have a good purpose. Did you want something? Yes, I, uh... Had a little talk. How's, uh, how's Kane? He's holding, no changes. And, uh... Our guest? Oh. Hmm? Well, as I said, I'm still... collating, actually, but, uh... I have confirmed that he's got an outer layer of protein polysaccharides. It's a funny habit of... Shedding his cells and replacing them with polarized silicon, which gives him a prolonged resistance to adverse environmental conditions. Said nothing. Holm is so good. He's instantly creepy, creepy throughout. And I got to say, I never felt any sympathy for him. The most terrifying scene in this movie, and I remember when I saw this when I was young and even still strikes me today, is his, I don't know if you can say death, but his bludgeoning and his refusal to die and the way they prolong his so-called life. I mean, there's just something so eerie about that. And But this is what I love about Holmes' performance is how he's he's always trying to balance, um, you know, this Ash's impulse is 
to be logical and rational, to do whatever needs to be done to complete this mission he's been given. But he has to mask that under this veneer of human emotion. Right. So <laughs> Holm is the moment where he does this perfectly is when the other crew members, the quarantine debate, they're trying to get in and Ripley doesn't want to let them in. Mm-hmm. And Holm wants to let them in because he wants the creature in, but he masks that under human compassion by saying, well, they're my crewmates. Of course, I couldn't right. help but let them in. And just the the levels of duplicity there are also very creepy. So yeah, you're right. It touches very lightly on, I think there are two things here that if you want to look for theme or meaning, it is absolutely a capital satire to, to some degree. Mm-hmm. And also it is something of a feminist statement very lightly handled in the fact that Sigourney Weaver's Ripley is going to be the one who really, we get the sense, should have been in charge all along in a lot of ways, Mm -hmm. ends up being in charge and has to solve things by meeting this alien, essentially. Not fleeing, not outsmarting it or anything like that, but meeting it face-to-face and conquering it. I think both of those things, as you said, are brought to full flourish more in Aliens by James Cameron. Both Mm -hmm. of those elements, whether or not we were thinking about maybe trying to fit in Aliens too, but whether or not that makes Aliens the better film, I don't know. I'd have to take another look to say. Um, But I I really like how streamlined and delicately minimalist um, that Alien handles those two things while letting them be there and letting us over them. But really what it does, I want to get back to the creature design and talk about this a little bit because it's just, yeah, it's just so iconic. And you, you wonder, well, why is that? How many creatures have we seen at the movies? And this shows you the brilliance of being able to do something different because in Batman v Superman, they roll out another one at the end of these space troll things that we've seen in how many movies? I mean, Alison Wilmore of Film Spotting SVU tweeted out something when that movie came out. I think she said, who wore it better? And it was like the space troll from Batman v Superman, the Lord of the Rings troll, which that came to mind right away. And then one other one, I think, from another recent superhero movie. And they all looked exactly the same. Right. Alien came up with something with Giger's design and working with the special effects team. They all did win an Oscar for their work. And I think there are a few key reasons why this does stick with us. And one of them is just that it's rooted in biology. They spend so much time on this thing's biology. And that, because we can recognize that and we can understand that, even though it's alien, it makes it so much scarier. I mean, I'm so B, my daughter is in fourth grade now. She's going through an intense animal phase, exploration phase. So she was telling me the other day about, and she'll be mortified that I don't get this right, but I believe it's a wasp or something that will land on another bug, lay its eggs, and when they hatch, they will have that other bug to eat. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that's how they grow, right? That's horrible. And it's happening right around us. So something like alien transplants that everyday occurrence to this alien world makes it happen to humans Mm -hmm. in the way they trace this biology and these parasitic functions. And to me, it's just rooting it in some level of reality that makes it that much more terrifying. And they get all the details right. Think about how goopy, you know, and how tactile this movie is when it comes to the alien. You've got that alien blood that's like acid, you Mm -hmm. know, you've got Hertz blood after the chest explosion thing is just all over the room. Right. Ridiculous amount of blood. Ashes, quote unquote, blood, that kind of milky, creamy milk. Oh, that's terrifying. And then, of course, we have whatever is coming, dripping out of the alien's mouth. So 
we're just drenched in all of this stuff that we can feel. We can feel it coming through the screen, and it's just a it, it's just such a goopy horror experience. This yeah, movie, it is. And actually, while I was watching it, it made me think about a complaint you had about a film from the seventies that's a masterpiece, which is The Exorcist, which has some similarly sexual bodily functions and all sorts of other fluids that we see play out and horrifying sequences. And you were very turned off by those. Didn't buy in a the minute of those. But here, something like the chest bursting scene seems very similar to me in some ways and for me just as effective. I think the reason I didn't buy any of those is because they seemed, even though they were taking place on Earth with an actual human, they seemed less realistic, if that makes any sense. Once you're rooting what's going on here, once we've walked ourselves through the process from egg to hatching Mm -hmm. to, again, all these recognizable biological functions... That makes it more real to me than what was going on in The Exorcist. Well, how aware of you? I mean, you mentioned biology, but let's talk specifically about sex. How much were you aware as you watched it about the phallic nature of the alien that also seems to be mixed with a very feminine aspect to it? And the fact that, I mean, O'Bannon himself, the guy who wrote the original screenplay for this film, is pretty explicit in some of his interviews about this movie saying that he was really trying to make every male in the audience feel queasy that he was trying to give you almost the most terrific version of a birth scene and that's what it is in the form of john hurt and even in the form of the face hugger that first attaches itself to john hurt this is basically as he put it an oral rape he is trying to give men the feeling of watching a horror film that women have felt watching horror films for decades. Yeah, I know that I know that thesis is out there and that um, it, it was, you know, partly intentional, as you say. But I got to say, I I never really registered to me that way. And again, it goes maybe it simply goes back to myself being as a kid, like into animals to the degree of watching so many nature shows that that's just stuff of Earth to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that's all stuff that animals do. And certainly it has that metaphorical value too. But to me, it was more a situation of, okay, what if you were somewhere in space and these sort of processes that we avoid as civilized humans began to happen to us. Um, And and that was frightening enough for me. Yeah, I'm with you there. And I think going back to Weaver a little bit, and one of the real delights of this film being that the movie really takes its time and is quite deliberate in how it reveals itself, what kind of movie it really is. And that comes through in the way that we don't really know who the protagonist is. We don't really know who our hero or our heroine is going to be. And this movie launched Weaver's career. And we've talked about her a little bit when we've talked about aliens. I know it's made a top five or two of mine over the years, but really with her, what she exudes is this sense of real pragmatism, right? It's not like she's a super badass. She becomes more of a badass as the films by go on. Yeah, by necessity. But it's just her pragmatism that we respect the most. And I think what really comes through in this, you know, going back to the line about how I said I had some sympathy for Ian Holm, what I really meant was just the fact that if you do see him early on as a pure scientist, I mean, you've discovered an alien creature out there in the universe. Of course, you're going to be curious and actually want to figure out what it is as opposed to just destroying. Sure. And he is serious about his work and we're as curious. So I guess you do. You want to follow him along for those reasons. Right. But unlike that creature, which as Ash describes it in a way that you could describe certainly a lot of corporations that we saw on screen in the 1970s in this 
era kind of of disillusionment. He describes it as the perfect organism. I admire its purity, its sense of survival, unclouded by conscience, remorse, or delusions of morality. Ash isn't describing a biological creature at all. He's describing an entity, an unfeeling entity whose only goal is to continue to exist and to flourish, right? And so you can see how that metaphor, of course, harkens back to the capitalism a little bit. But what makes Ripley so great is that she exhibits, instead of the hubris that really the corporation exudes, she has respect for that creature and the potential threat of that creature and the unknown of nature in general. But she also, of course, has respect for human life. The whole reason she won't let that thing on board the ship is because she recognizes that it could be a threat and it could be a threat to everyone on board. Of course, Ash and the company, they don't have either of those traits, unfortunately. But the little bit of misdirection, again, going back to the Star Wars bit, maybe, and the fact that it'd be very easy to think that Tom Skerritt as the captain is maybe yeah. going to be the hero of this movie, and they just keep getting picked off one by one until we realize, okay, actually, the person who's made the most sense the whole time, she's really the hero of this story. Now, what's interesting, thinking about her as a feminist icon, if you will, I wonder, though, about the fact, Josh, looking back, and I don't think this is really a knock on the film, but... I just think it's worth discussing. It is interesting that when we see her interacting with Veronica Cartwright, Lambert, who is perhaps a bit more of a stereotypical woman in an yeah, action movie, right? I would say she's, so. she's chain smoking and she's very afraid and yeah. she's hysterical. And in the point where the alien is coming down on her, she just cowers and she doesn't do anything. Whereas the like opposite Ripley, of Ripley. Yeah, Ripley is defined by her action. She's always acting, right? They're bickering with each other the first time we see them really interact with each other when they're doing their jobs. And then in a key scene where Ripley, as the senior officer, goes to Ash, and this is the scene you were referring to where he couches everything as if you really cared about human life. Well, what, what did you want me to do? I had to let them on board the ship. Kane might die. She points out to him that he didn't act within the manual. He didn't do what he was supposed to do. He didn't act like a science officer who should have known that they needed to stay in quarantine. And when he says, I care about doing my job just as much as you do, and you need to let me do my job, she just turns and walks away. The movie really does just have her in that moment. I don't know what she should have done instead, but she doesn't have any response to that. And she certainly doesn't put Ash in his place. She does consistently let Ash undermine her. Yeah, I think that didn't bother me because she doesn't quite yet have the authority over him that she might need to do anything because mm -hmm. Dallas is still around and he's the captain at this point as long as he is around. I actually, you know, that was the scene for me where I felt like we would swing over her way because it would take guts even to go ahead and challenge him about that. I think the alternative would have been to just let it go. Mm -hmm. But no, she shows here that just because they're equals in terms of colleagues, just because maybe this would come into play, she's a woman, she's not going to drop it. She's going to pursue it with him. Yeah. She's going to go tell him, hey, you did it. You did it against my command. And actually, maybe she is his superior at that point. But anyways, in this experience of the film, it, it felt to me like that was her stepping out. That was one of the moments where she did try to take charge mm -hmm. by holding to the quarantine. And even though that didn't work, she still stepped out and was like, hey, this was out of line. For sure. And at least my sympathies go with her yeah. at that point. Yeah, absolutely. One thing I did want to ask you about and i've debated whether or not i should bring this up only because i potentially look a foolish for not getting it or b foolish for not spending more time researching it and finding an answer because it's probably out there but did the chronology of 
the corporation slash mother slash ash, did the chronology of their understanding of what the creature is or what their desires for the creature, the alien were, was that clear to you? Because the reason I'm asking is, as you watch the movie play out without knowing that there's anything nefarious going on, right? you just assume that he is being a man of science. Ash is saying, I want that organism on board this ship. Yeah. You don't know why or what he's going to do with it or that anyone else cares about it. You just think he wants it. And like I said, you can kind of understand that. But the notion is almost there's this tremendous irony in the fact that somebody set up a distress signal that was actually a warning and the warning signal is the very thing that drew them to the planet, right? Instead of it doing its job and functioning as a signal that would scare people away, it actually drew the people there. Okay, but as you get through the film, it becomes clearer from the discussions with Mother and what Ash says to Ripley in that confrontation that the notion is Ash was put on this ship all along. The right. mission of this ship from the very beginning was to find yeah. that very beacon and to discover it and to take it back so i just wanted to be clear on that that is how we see it that from the very beginning there was never any accident them stumbling across this on lv426 am well, i right i don't know about that i think you're right in that wasn't ash a last minute replacement right yes so i think that and they suggest indicates... he was because they knew right so yeah. but you know for me it didn't bother me or trip me up for a couple of reasons i mean they may have put him on there because they somehow found out that there was the possibility of this mm -hmm. and this particular crew was going to be nearby. Maybe it was the closest vessel nearby. Yeah. So that did bother me. And also once communications are back up, you know, I was just assuming that there were other communications going to Ash by some way sure. through Mother or something No, like I, that. I did as well. In fact, I thought there was a scene maybe where Ash was in the computer room with Mother by himself, and I went back and scanned through it, and that doesn't exist. Though I love that little bit of misdirection again where Ripley's in there and yes. then Ash in that shot of yeah, all yeah. of a sudden right next to her. Yes. And that is pretty scary. But it's not something that really bothered me so much as it's interesting that if we buy the idea that the corporation knew all along that this organism somehow existed out there mm -hmm. and had an objective to bring it back. And that's really why they put these people on this ship. It of course opens that larger question of, well, how did they know it was out there? And maybe this is some of the stuff Ridley Scott was attempting to answer in Prometheus, yes, I, which I don't remember enough into, about it. You're getting but, a headache territory but now. Is that, is that, or, that it did occur to me that then something that is fundamental to the story is not explained at all. They really do leave it out there just for you to, think about and i guess ponder how did they know how did they ever get information back about this life force it was something anyway that did stick in my mind as i watched the movie one thing i wanted to get to before we wrap up i hope you're is, gonna say jerry goldsmith <laughs> well we can talk about that um and, and we probably should i was going to talk about the performances a little bit yes. and you touched on this in the beginning when you mentioned the close-ups because so Many of the key moments here are in close-up. They're partly in dialogue to establish that dynamic among the crew. But once that's set in place, we get a lot of the fear and the wonderment mm -hmm. and the terror, really, at some point by close-ups. And I think Weaver is especially good at this home we talked about a little bit. And even Scarrett, too. And, and just formally, what I like that Scott does with these close-ups is there's an early rhythm to the movie where we'll get one of those really tight. It's all face. And then the very next shot, after a quick cut, is some expanse, some wide 
vast expanse. So Skerritt looking at the X-Moon itself. You know, we'll see his face, and then we get this spectacular planetary Mm -hmm. vista. And then later on, there's the one of John Hurt in his space helmet when they're on the planet. Mm -hmm. And he's, you know, fearful there. And then the next one is that cavernous egg-hatching lair. So those two come right after each other. And just going back to this sense of constriction that I was talking about at the beginning, I noticed this time that that rhythm slows down as the movie goes on and we get less of the cutaway shots to expanse and more Mm close-ups and more interiors. And eventually that's all we're left with. So we just, it's like the the movie's tightened itself, tightened the the actual space around us by the end. And and we're left with more of those close-ups that are, we never get outside the ship. We don't. I think the last one we get outside is when she's in the escape Mm -hmm. shuttle. There's one of the, there's one of those when she's about to launch, but at that point it's kind of a false a false relief right? because we're not really at the end. No. And Jerry Goldsmith, I wanted to bring him up because we've talked about really all the key players in this except for the composer. And I'm notoriously bad at describing why I like scores, but I really like this score. I mean, everything that we've talked about that's effective about this film in terms of this creeping sense of dread and the isolation and the deliberateness and the subtlety, those elements all do come through in the music. I'd agree. It's that I one of my first notes was, wow, hardly any score. Right. Like I didn't remember it that way, but right. what it is is that the score is in the exact right places. Yeah. And so it's I don't drawing think, attention to itself. No, and but I don't think you could call it like um necessarily subtle. No, like when it's, it's not, there it's doing its, its not work. Hiding. No, no, but but it's it's just doing its work at exactly the right moment. Absolutely. From May 2019, that was our 40th anniversary Sacred Cow review of Ridley Scott's Alien. Scott's latest Napoleon is currently in theaters. We'll have a review of that on next week's show. Coming up, we consider the career of Napoleon star, Joaquin Phoenix. Our top five Phoenix performances are next. Stay with us. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Sometimes I think I've felt everything I'm ever going to feel. And from here on out, I'm not going to feel anything new. Just lesser versions of what I've already felt. (laughs) I know for a fact that is not true. We are ready to dive into this top five. Look at our favorite performances by... Someone who is one of the best actors, if not the best actors, working today. We do have one disclaimer. We're setting aside one film that would have definitely made both of our lists. One performance by Joaquin Phoenix. And that's not because it's been talked about a lot over the course of the show's history. It's actually because we're going to be talking about it coming up. Yeah, we have our next bonus show for film spotting family members focusing on her 
the 10-year-old. It's the 10th anniversary of Spike Jones's Her, believe it or not. So that was one reason we wanted to revisit it. Also, considering Joaquin Phoenix for this top five and with Bo is Afraid, we thought it'd be another good chance to take a look at her. And of course, we're living right now, not only in the age of AI, but chat GPT. So that plot is going to have a lot of resonance for us, I think. And we will be spending a fair amount of time talking about Phoenix's performance in her. So we are setting that aside, putting it in the penalty box for this list. Officially, though, I think we can say, Adam, it would be on both of our lists otherwise. Yes, one of his best performances as Theodore in her, without a doubt. Let's get into our list, though. I can't wait to hear what you've got at number five. All right. I am going sort of back to the beginning with Jimmy Emmett from To Die For. Now, Phoenix had been in a number of pictures before, so this isn't exactly his first or second role even, but it was his breakout, Gus Vincent's 1995 satire about fame and celebrity. Phoenix's Jimmy is one of the high schoolers who falls under the spell of Nicole Kidman's aspiring TV reporter. She seduces him, manipulates him into killing her husband. Couldn't you just get a divorce? And and then... we get the car, Joe. And he'd get the car. And he'd take Walter from me. Listen, uh, I know you think I'm just a kid, but I could never do anything bad to you or or ever hurt you. A guy that does that to someone like you doesn't deserve to live. That's the truth. He doesn't deserve to live. What's interesting to me about this performance, especially looking through the lens of the rest of Phoenix's career, is that right from the start, he had no interest in audience sympathy, did not seem like something that he cared about, was on his radar at all. Yet, he nevertheless gets it. Somehow in this this character, we do have a bit of sympathy for Jimmy Emmett, even though he's a messy kid making bad decisions. Phoenix brings that out in us while being completely committed to those more negative aspects of the character. I did turn to social media uh, to help me make some of these other Phoenix performance picks just to see beyond her, you know, and some of the other obvious ones, what people's favorites were. And I got a few interesting responses when it came to Jimmy Emmett here. A few people who also picked it. Adam Rupert touched on this audience sympathy quality on Facebook, said that scene where he's shaking so bad while being questioned by the police, heartbreaking. And then over on Twitter, Marissa Jude, she's at Marissa Jude here said, Phoenix reminded me of Juliette Lewis's performance in Cape Fear, the exquisite and nuanced expression of vulnerability and desire that seems unteachable. Well said by both. I love that comparison to Juliette Lewis, also one of those just deeply uncomfortable, unsettling breakout performances from Mm -hmm. a younger performer. And I think it does apply to what Phoenix is doing here as Jimmy Emmett in To Die For. An honorable mention for me, one that was a strong contender for my top five. And you're right, the performance that surely put him on the map for a lot of viewers, put him on the map for me. Now, I had seen him first as Leaf Phoenix then in Space Camp in the mid-80s, <laughs> but I wasn't paying a whole lot of attention then to him as someone who I thought would be one of the best actors of his generation. But 
you're correct and the listener is correct that he plays a character who shouldn't be heartbreaking, but is. He's a killer. And we have to buy that he's going to make the leap he does as a character. He's naive, certainly. He's malleable. He's gullible in that way. But he doesn't seem overly dangerous. And for him then to get to that point where he is going to murder Matt Dillon's character, we have to buy that. And we buy it because Phoenix makes him damaged enough that you can go there as quickly as you do with him. But then he also plays him as an innocent so that he just becomes part of this tragic, manipulative web of Kidman's character. He's another victim in it all. I wonder if damaged is going to come up quite a bit on our list. That word, that's a good one that fits absolutely. My number five Joaquin Phoenix performance is the performance that earned him the first of his four Academy Award nominations. He did not win. We know he won for a performance that might come up later on one of our lists, Josh. This was his Best Supporting Actor nominated turn as Commodus in Ridley Scott's Gladiator. And I googled this just Gladiator Commodus earlier today to get a little bit of background on the real-life person that he was portraying. Not that it matters, but I was curious because I hadn't read anything. And this is the first thing that popped up. Commodus was a terrible ruler by virtually any standard. His fictionalized depiction as a mad emperor in the film Gladiator actually plays down some of his less believable excesses while giving him a nobler death. So so just keep that in mind, Josh, that that sniveling, conniving, evil little baby that Joaquin Phoenix plays is actually exhibiting some restraint. Yeah, yeah. He's underplaying it, apparently. He's underplaying it. We joke. I do genuinely enjoy the theatricality of the performance. I think it's a nice counter to the untheatricality of Russell Crowe's performance. We get one great moment I always see in my head where Commodus is watching a battle and there's a big blood spurt and he lets out this lusty response with his tongue hanging out and he's kind of gritting his teeth and growling at the response. But in general, that character... The way Phoenix portrays him is angstier than Robert Pattinson in The Batman and Adam Driver in any of those Star Wars movies combined. He is so quiet and deliberate. It's as if it's wrenching him to even speak. It pains him so much. And he's a weak character. He's more than that. He's evil. But Phoenix really does give him some dimension. We we see the emotional havoc it wreaks on him to be weak, to not live up to his father's image or to his father's expectations. And Phoenix amplifies, I think, his self-awareness. Even then it was as if you didn't want me for your son. Oh, Commodus, you go too far. I search the faces of the gods for ways to please you. To make you proud. One kind word. One full hug. Where you pressed me to your chest and helped me tight. Phoenix with Richard Harris there as Marcus Aurelius. One full hug, Josh. Press me to your chest and held me tight. That's that's all he's long for. I guarantee you that Russell Crowe's Maximus is never saying the word hug 
in Gladiator, and we don't expect any characters to say the word hug in a lot of Gladiator-type movies. But when he says, all I've ever wanted was to live up to you, Caesar, father, you believe him. You really believe the emotional depth of that. I have not seen Gladiator since it came out when I liked it well enough. But it's interesting, you know, how careers have gone in terms of the stars and so forth. The reason I would rewatch Gladiator now is to reconsider that Joaquin Phoenix performance, just in terms of how his career has ascended. Russell Crowe's has, mm-hmm. Crow's has tailed off. And you wouldn't think that, yeah, I'm going to go look at Gladiator again for the acting necessarily. <laughs> but that is what still intrigues me. And maybe I'll have to do a revisit for that. All right. Number four for me is Meryl Hess in Signs. This is Phoenix in likable mode in M. Night Shyamalan's alien invasion thriller. Likable mode is something he can do and does on occasion. Not very often, however, but it's kind of fun and rewarding when he pulls it out of his toolkit. I also like here how he effortlessly slips into what is essentially an ensemble piece. I mean, Mel Gibson is the lead, of course, but this is an ensemble drama in a lot of ways. And Phoenix comes in to do things You might not expect to lighten the mood, lighten the movie's edges a little bit. He just has a wonderfully light comic touch, and I think it's probably best displayed when he gives the response to Mel Gibson's long soliloquy about miracles or coincidences. This is a this is an occasion of Shyamalan, I think, also kind of undercutting himself and being aware of his grandiloquent tendencies with this soliloquy here, but then in comes Phoenix, Merrill has given this whole speech some, you know, probably not so deep thought, and he decides he's a miracle man. I was at this party once. I'm on the couch with a random beginning. She's just sitting there, looking beautiful, staring at me. I go to lean in and kiss her, and I realize I've gone in my mouth. So I turn. Take out the gum, stuff in a paper cup next to the sofa, and turn around. Randa McKinney throws up all over herself. I knew the second it happened, it was a miracle. I could have been kissing her when she threw up. Meryl is the sort of part that this movie, you know, signs didn't really need Meryl necessarily, but because of Phoenix's performance, now, when I think about it, I can't imagine the film without him, you know, just because of the the contributions he makes and, again, the different vibes he brings to this film. Another fan of this performance is Aaron Bergstrom over on Twitter at Aaron Bergstrom. He wrote, Phoenix is so often associated with playing weirdos, often dangerous ones. So when I look back at his performance as a well-meaning fella like Merrill, I appreciate how good he is at depicting loyalty and bravery. So, yeah, maybe... A simpler character than some of the others he plays, but he plays it just right. He does. Very good in that scene. Very good in that film. Interesting that we've got back-to-back choices in which we hear Joaquin Phoenix whispering, primarily. (laughs) Talking very, very (laughs) quietly. Different circumstances. And Meryl, not exactly an evil character. My number four, I've got another weirdo. Definitely one of Joaquin Phoenix's weirdos. And you were talking about him in terms of whether he plays characters who are likable or unlikable. This is one who I don't even know where to put him on that scale. And it's not because 
he's got things about him that make him someone that you really respond to favorably and even aspire to be like. That's not the case at all. But he also isn't so bad that you despise him ever either. He's just an immensely flawed character. And that character is Leonard Creditor in James Gray's Two Lovers. So multiple collaborations with James Gray. I'm going with his performance as Leonard in Two Lovers. What a trip down memory lane it was, Josh, reminding myself about this film, this performance, and the context around it. I had completely forgotten that Two Lovers, the movie, and this performance were totally overshadowed at the time by the shenanigans surrounding the filming of I'm Still Here, which would come out two years later. Or actually, just a little over a year later, in terms of when we reviewed this film, Two Lovers on the Show, it was February 27th, 2009. That infamous David Letterman appearance was February 11th, 2009. So this hmm. was all in the wake of that. And people were really watching Two Lovers, thinking it was Joaquin Phoenix's swan song from acting. It was supposedly his final performance as an actor because he was retiring to become a rapper. And with all of that, he had apparently completely lost his mind. So here, here's my hope that after some time off, uh, and I think you're taking a little time off tonight, uh, <laughs> I, I'm hopeful that you will reconsider and, and come back to acting because you're just, you know, nobody really better than you are. Yeah. Uh, see, thank you. Never say never, right? I don't, I don't know. Don't, you don't know what? I don't know if I, I don't know what'll happen. But you, you are, uh, you're not going to act anymore. No. Huh? Why is that? Hmm. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, so you, you have given it some thought. This will come up some more, but going through my notes. It was amazing because I looked back on these different films that have been reviewed on the show, how many times I'd use synonyms <laughs> to describe his characters and movies. In this case, it was talking about a character who was always kind of floating through these scenes, disconnected from everything, that the movie itself has an ethereal quality to it. It's basically a fable. You could apply similar words and phrases to Bo is Afraid or to some of these other performances that we'll probably talk about. For those who don't remember Two Lovers, it's pretty much what the name suggests. It's a movie about a love triangle. Leonard is involved with two different women, one who really wants to take care of him and wants to love him, and he's too neurotic to let her do it. That's Vanessa Shaw's character. And then there's another woman who he wants to take care of, and She's the one with the issues in allowing him to do that. That's Gwyneth Paltrow's character. But there's a melancholy to Leonard that makes him endearing or certainly endearing enough. And there's an intimacy that Gray captures with Phoenix and these women that is really striking in the way Phoenix can often be intimate on screen and also make you a little bit uncomfortable at the same time. There's an intensity to these intimate scenes that can be both off-putting and something that also brings you in. And what really stands out about Phoenix 
in this role, but again, I'm sure many others we might get to, he's someone who's utterly uninterested in vanity. He, he has no interest in being cool on screen, and Leonard is not cool. And he also has no interest in being conventionally masculine, which is also one of the things that I think really does define Phoenix as a fascinating performer. He's, he's volatile, but the softer and the more vulnerable he is on screen, the more interesting he is. And that's certainly the case here with Leonard in Two Lovers. You think if I got to know you that I wouldn't love you, but I do know you. And I love you even more. I understand you, Michelle. I'm f up too. I will never walk away from you. Never. He left you. I never do that. I take care. Well, you went with the the one Joaquin Phoenix, James Gray collaboration I have not seen, but I've liked the other two. So I'm going to assume you're right in this pick, Adam. I especially like him in the yards. I, I can still picture kind of his, his devilish face in that one. So yeah, these two have been really strong collaborators. My number three pick is with another filmmaker he has worked with twice now, and that would be Paul Thomas Anderson. Here at number three, I have Larry Doc Sportello from Inherent Vice. We've touched on a little bit his comedic abilities, and I think this is the movie of all of his that I've seen that puts them on display the most. This adaptation of Thomas Pynchon's comic gumshoe novel, it's set against the druggy beach scene of 1970 California. Doc Sportello is this hazy private detective just eking out a living of sorts in a beach shack just a few blocks from the ocean. And as happens in these sort of tales, he gets caught up in a rabbit hole of an investigation. Phoenix has so much fun with the curly Q noir dialogue here and the chance to play really this addled fool who's sometimes smarter than he's presenting himself and a lot of times not, <laughs> or or let's just say not in complete control of his faculties. And just watching Phoenix have fun with that is such a blast. So many of the laughs come from observing Doc trying to focus in the midst of these increasingly ridiculous conversations with all sorts of characters. And this includes Josh Brolin's Lieutenant Detective Bigfoot Bjornsson. Don't get up. Bigfoot and he smashed on my door. Come on. After a long and busy day of civil rights violations, I found myself in the neighborhood and compelled to drop in just to check and see the current state of affairs at my old stomping grounds. Seeing as your effort to keep lines of communication had been limited, to say the least. Well, I've been busy. Trying to figure out which side of the zigzag paper is the sticky sign. This is not just a comedic performance, though. A few listeners mentioned when they made this pick some of the other qualities that uh, appealed to them about the performance. Andrew Bodenbach on Facebook said he's hilarious and ridiculous, but what really hits is how compassionate he is. He really cares about mm -hmm. people. I think you do feel that. And here's from Jeremy S. Wade at American Wade on Twitter. You just really want that poor son of a bitch to get a win. And this kind of speaks, I think, more to the, you come around to his character's side so often, 
despite all evidence to the contrary, that that's where you should be. And there's a little bit of that element here in Doc Sportello as well. Uh, it's also fun to think about this being the performance, going back to the idea of collaborations, this being the performance and the character that he and Paul Thomas Anderson wanted to explore together after working on The Master. So interesting choice. I don't want to get ahead of myself, so I'll leave that there. And I don't want to get ahead of myself either, Josh. So I will also leave Larry Doc Sportello right there and go to my number three, Joaquin Phoenix performance, a performance in a film that no one will apply the words fun to or blast to like you just did with inherent vice. But one connection, you've got Phoenix in your number three, chasing down a missing girl in a complex conspiracy. And so do I. But Joe from Lynn Ramsey's 2017 film, You Were Never Really Here, is definitely not the teddy bear, the compassionate teddy bear that Doc Sportello is. And Joe suffers from something that Doc doesn't, which is severe trauma. So you've got a character who is all about repression and is all about withholding. Other than the blunt acts of violence that he carries out, he's not demonstrative. He's certainly not vocal. He barely speaks. This has to be the fewest lines that Phoenix has in any one of his performances. He's a big physical presence, like with Bo is Afraid. He put on weight for this role, and he certainly carries it. It's it's not a weight that manifests itself certainly in muscle or as if he's been hitting the gym a lot. He is someone who carries a big burden and needs a big frame to do it. And yet somehow... Phoenix makes him feel like a ghost, like he's incapable of leaving a footprint. He's just moving through the world almost invisible to everyone around him. A line that has always stuck with me from that film is when a character says, and if I remember the context right, they're not using it negatively. I think they may need his skills. They say, I hear you're brutal. And Phoenix says, I can be. And something about the the kind of flat delivery of that, the succinct screenwriting there, just having him say, I can be, it's a case where Phoenix in the performance could indicate in that line reading or with some kind of physicality or something on his face before, during, after he says it, he could indicate that, well, he's not really a monster. He doesn't want to be brutal, but sometimes he has to be. And again, he's not someone who's interested in being cool on screen. He's not someone who's interested, it would seem, in indicating those things to the audience. He's he's willing to play Joe for exactly who he is. And his future actions, his choices will determine what we ultimately think of him. How many, Josh, Killer Seeks Redemption movies have we seen? <laughs> I don't know if we've done that top five before we probably have like assassins with a heart of gold or something. It's a well-worn convention at this point. And Phoenix gives any beat that might feel familiar, a completely different spin. He makes this character, Joe, a truly enigmatic one and that he makes some choices sometimes that are confusing or bewildering or troubling or, Upsetting, but you don't ever actually question him as a man. And I think that's where the term damaged will come back into play here at least one more time. 
as a damaged man. That's the word that pops up here. I'm just pulling up my review and I liked it a little less than you, um, but did appreciate how the filmmaking aligned itself with Phoenix's performance and the character's headspace, right? Lynn Ramsey using just a lot of impressionistic imagery. And I think of that, the haunting sound design as well. But yeah, I, I wrote how this is all geared toward evoking Joe's deranged, damaged point of view. So there it is. What do you have at number two? This might be where you want to go get some more popcorn and and something to drink. Maybe look for a lid, an uh-huh. elusive lid, because it's Arthur Fleck in Joker. I do think that Phoenix has a talent, above all, for miserableness. And to me, this is one of his most fascinating ones, Arthur Fleck. The movie itself, we don't need to relitigate it. I know I'm one of the few people who take it seriously. I'll say I still feel okay about that a couple years on. I think we've only seen more disgruntled individuals lashing out at society Um, that hasn't lightened up in recent years. So I think this movie resonates in that way. And I also think that is what connects with Phoenix's performance. Arthur Fleck is both a symptom and a symbol of societal breakdown in Joker. And that is something that Phoenix communicates through a performance of operatic physicality. So yeah, I like the movie. There's a lot there. But for me, it's Phoenix who is the centrifugal force. And I am mesmerized by his carefully choreographed but seemingly chaotic clumsiness in this movie. That's also what makes this a somewhat funny performance. I think of him running down the streets or hallways, his limbs all askew. He's not, but he might as well be wearing clown shoes. That's that's how he runs. I think about him slipping and fumbling with the gun on the subway in that sequence where he's trying to defend himself from his attackers. And then, yeah, the dance on those steps I love so much. The dance and then his comic scrambling away when the cops come interrupt him and undercut the whole scene. Now, as outward as so much of this is Phoenix, this is the thing he does. We've touched on a number of times. He internalizes all of this as well. So you're getting both. He's using physicality to convey an internal brokenness. And we get another man who's, whose wires just seem to be crossed. And in this movie, he's stuck in a society that doesn't care at all to even bother trying to uncross them. Until a while ago, it was like nobody ever saw me. Even I didn't know if I really existed. Arthur, I have some bad news for you. You don't listen, do you? I don't think you ever really hear me. You just ask the same questions every week. How's your job? Are you having any negative thoughts? All I have are negative thoughts, but you don't listen anyway. I said, for my whole life, I didn't know if I even really existed, but I do. And people are starting to notice. I heard from Anton Varfort uh, over on Twitter who said, Joker is good. I think there is a vulnerability or maybe even something damaged, there it is, to Joaquin, that makes him work especially well in those kind of roles. I don't think the movie was amazing, but it wasn't just a king of comedy ripoff. So, yep, I'm going with Arthur Fleck. My number two, I think, you know, technically, if we were including her, I'd probably have it up this high and Joker would be at three. But for now... It's my number two Joaquin Phoenix performance. Yeah, let's just go ahead and keep this positive. 
I'm not going to rehash any of my comments <laughs> about not only the film, but actually it turns out I, I didn't even really like Joaquin Phoenix's performance. and Terrible, that, terrible, That to Adam. me, especially after preparing for this list, is genuinely unthinkable because I think he can pull off the impossible and yet Joker was too much for Joaquin Phoenix in this case. I've got at number two, a performance that you already mentioned. Some crossover here, Paul Thomas Anderson, Larry Doc Sportello from Inherent Vice, which contains what is still probably my funniest moment in any Paul Thomas Anderson film. When early in the movie, he's talking to Jenna Malone's character at her kitchen table. She's recounting her heroin use and getting pregnant. She shows a picture of little Amethyst, which Phoenix's doc responds to this way. This is what we had her looking like. Everybody helpfully pointed out how the heroin was actually coming through my breast milk. But... <laughs> Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know that I've seen one used myself in the wild, but not surprisingly, if you search Inherent Vice Scream or Joaquin Phoenix Screaming, all the gifts pop up. <laughs> this is a ready-made <laughs> meme moment, but it's really brilliant acting. I mean, Malone, she doesn't flinch at all when he screams like that. She does say, I don't know if you have the stomach for it before she hands him the photo. So she knows that the picture is horrifying because she was breastfeeding, but using heroin at the time, but it's still her baby. And you still expect that Doc Sportello will react by repressing whatever his instinctual reaction is. You actually think he'll do what he does right after he screams, which is he looks again at the photo, even though he doesn't want to, he looks again at the photo, almost like he's, he's assessing it. And he says, "Mm hmm. And he's very clinical about it, but he he can't help it. He's so horrified, he lets out that scream, and then it just immediately closes up, and I laugh every time I see it. And I do just love this gumshoe character who's in, as you said, this labyrinthine pension world of early 70s L.A. In the setup to our review of this film, I described it this way. I said, take the Big Lebowski's perpetually stone protagonist – Add the anachronistic absurdity and culture clashing of Altman's The Long Goodbye, mix in the borderline nonsensical plot machinations of The Big Sleep, and top it all off with the pervasive corruption of Chinatown. That's what you get with this film. And there's some pretty strong touchstones there. Not surprising that I love this movie as much as I do. And I think one of his real gifts, we've talked about a few of them, is that he's able to embody these characters who do kind of straddle these different these different worlds he so naturally exudes being a man out of time even literal time with this character and others in terms of the the pace of his movements his manner of speaking he always moves at his own pace and often doesn't verbally respond in moments that you think a walking phoenix character would He's he's processing, he's experiencing it. You experience it in real time with Phoenix's character. So I'm with you in my appreciation. I have it even higher. Doc Sportello at number two. A lot of processing going on by Doc. A in lot that movie. of processing, yes, indeed. <laughs> and that that brings us to our number one, which is not a surprising pick, but we think it's the right pick, obviously, and it's a joint. 
number one pick. There there can only be one here if we're talking about Phoenix, and it turns out if we're talking about Phoenix and Paul Thomas Anderson. Yeah, I mean, in the Masters, Freddie Quell, it's a character you immediately know when you first see him in that movie. You're not going to take your eyes off him, partly because you don't want him out of your sight for what he will do. <laughs> If he's out of your your range of vision, so discomforting, so unnerving, maybe the character that tests the theory the most of Phoenix somehow still attracting the audience's interest and sympathy. I think Freddie Quell pushes that the most, and it's only maybe having Philip Seymour Hoffman's master as something of an antagonist that allows that to happen. I think once we see how Freddie is being manipulated a little bit, we maybe begin to feel a little more sorry for him, but this is a broken, dangerous, scarred man. And I remember my first impression of the master, a movie I've revisited a number of times, but coming away from it, that first screening was Phoenix's face and what he did Mm -hmm. to it. I don't know how he transformed physically so much you know we talk about losing weight gaining weight for actors i wrote his face was withered and worn particularly when he scowls it's almost as if his cleft lip has spread so that rivulets now also cross his cheeks his brow his chin and that also is a physical manifestation again of what's inside it's like all Mm -hmm. of this torture is bubbling and seeping out and it's coming out in his face. It's also coming out in how Freddie walks, how Phoenix carries himself. I want to get to this when we talk about his performance in her. Um, there's some interesting examples of just, you know, his gait as an actor, and mm-hmm. we see it here mm-hmm. more than anywhere else, I think. It's just this mask of torment that Phoenix wears and spreads to the rest of his body. Um, And of course, it it does explode into violent physicality at times. I think one of the movie's first indications of this is that incredibly odd and uncomfortable scene where Freddie is working as a photographer at the department store when he gets back from the war and he just lets his rage seep out into this passive-aggressive session with a client. I'm starting to sweat. You need to shut up. You need to move the gun. You need to shut up. You need to back off. Sit down. I'm very sorry. I'm trying to get the lighting right. You must understand. You want to get the lighting right. You can hear the simmering confrontation there, but... There's also, of course, in what Phoenix does, again, the actions, there's the slow shoving of that hot lamp towards the man's face, mm-hmm. then the choke-like tightening of, of the tie, and of course, again, that scowling look he has at the very beginning of the scene, just utter disdain for this guy. You know he hates this man. We could speculate on the reasons. I, I think the movie goes on to give us a few of them, but immediately, Freddie Quell hates this man. It's going to go badly for him. So yeah. I'm with you, master crowning achievement at this point in his career. Just a perfect marriage uh, of the physical and the psychological that he's he's so good at. Rewatching that scene today, I don't think it's an accident that the actor, if you look closely, the actor really resembles Philip Seymour Hoffman's Lancaster Dog. Yeah, you're right. He? So it's it's foreshadowing the relationship he's going to have with that man as well, Lancaster Dodd, and we do get this seemingly unprovoked response, this disdain for this character. But it all starts when he asks him 
about who it's for. He says it's for his wife. This mm-hmm. is this is the virile American male who is the domesticated version of a man that Freddie Quell can never be. Right. And it makes sense on some level that then that's going to be his instinctive response to him. And this movie is dealing with a lot of those subjects and those themes in a way that is not spelled out. But I really feel that Freddie Quell is carrying the burden of post-war America on his shoulders, on his pretty slight shoulders here. Yeah. He's very thin and way more frail coming back from the war. And the way I described his character at the time was he's like an arthritic fist. Mm. You know, he's he's just crumpled up. Crumpled. And we see it in that That's scene. Good. It's as if every part of him is in pain. And I think he does remark at some point that he's got stomach pain, but you watch him in that scene when he's getting the camera ready. Freddie Quell acts as if he's perpetually experiencing heartburn, a terrible taste in his mouth. It is as if he is always suffering or experiencing some pain. And you watch his mannerisms in that scene or throughout the movie as Freddie. I really think a lot of lesser actors who tried to embody that character, tried to evoke those feelings and the type of phrasing that we're summoning here, they would make him overly theatrical. They would make him feel like a character. It wouldn't feel natural and it wouldn't have the power that it has. The the putting his hand on his hips, the the slouching that he does with his shoulders in, the the facial reactions, all the things we're saying. Phoenix makes it feel almost like Freddie Quell may have come out of the womb that way <laughs> to go back to Bo is afraid. We know that's probably not the case, that that the war and his experiences there had to shape him somewhat into, if not completely, into the man that we see now, this broken man that we see now. But he makes it feel as if this is his life experience and we don't ever we don't ever question it. I never questioned it in no. his performance. You you'd pass this guy in the street. I, you know, that's that's like a very basic litmus test you can give to any sort of reality-based performance at least. Can I yeah. imagine myself passing this guy in the street? And in Freddie Quell's case, absolutely. And you would know by all of those things you described Phoenix doing, that communicates you'd want to step aside, right? It's just mm-hmm. like this, chances are I'll pass this guy, it'll be fine. Chances just are more energy. likely it won't be. Yeah, even if he's not being assaultive himself in no, this no. moment. How he's carrying himself. It's just the energy. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Those are our top five Joaquin Phoenix performances. Any honorable mentions, Josh, that you'd like to throw in? Yeah, I think we should get to this one because I saw this come up a lot on social media. People are big fans of the film Come On, Come On and his performance as Johnny. This is from writer-director Mike Mills, and this is another nice guy, Phoenix, role, right? He's Mm -hmm. this single, kind of emotionally reserved uncle of a young boy, and he ends up caring for the boy while his mother and father are going through this difficult patch. The boy's played by Woody Norman. They have great chemistry together, Um, and it's a very generous and light turn, I think, that is as good as the other stuff he's done, maybe just not isn't the epitome to me of what Phoenix is like, so didn't quite make the cut. So should I call you like Papa or Dad or just Johnny? You can call me whatever feels comfortable to you. I, I, I don't know. It's just I'm not used to being able to choose. Maybe we can just take this process slowly. 
and 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 see see how it feels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm just really sorry that your children died. Um. You know, I don't think I can do that part. Yeah, I, I told you that's how me and mom do it. If it makes sense for your mom to do that, that's cool. But it doesn't make sense for me, and that's what oh, I was explaining to you. Why doesn't it make sense for you? It's, because it's ridiculous. Is it? It's sad. That's it for this edition of Film Spotting Revisited. If you have any comments about that top five, that review of Alien, or any other comments about the show, we'd love to hear from you. Feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Letterboxd. Adam is at Film Spotting. Just, just chowing down on those likes. Go over That's right. and check out his Napoleon review. But I need more. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm craving, like Napoleon, I'm craving more power. You're a madman. I'm at Larson on film. The current film spotting poll has us asking you to name your favorite film of 2023. It's that time of year. Always love seeing the results on this one. Vote and please leave a comment at filmspotting.net. For show t-shirts or other merch, go to filmspotting.net slash shop. You can also support Film Spotting by joining the Film Spotting family. You can do this over at filmspottingfamily.com, where for as little as five bucks a month, you can listen to the show early and ad-free. Plus, you'll get a weekly newsletter, monthly bonus shows, and access to the entire Film Spotting archive. The latest monthly bonus show, Josh, dropping very soon. Have some really good announcements coming along with that show. New features coming to the Film Spotting family. Maybe even a little revamping of the Film Spotting family offerings. Stay tuned for all of that. Filmspottingfamily.com. In wide release this weekend, a movie I didn't know existed. It's called Godzilla Minus One. Godzilla attacks post-World War II Japan. We also have Renaissance, a film by Beyonce. Josh, I know that you will be eagerly tuning in. You have been a connoisseur of all things Beyonce in cinema. Yeah, I mean, I saw her live so this summer, so I guess I'll relive Name it again. It was, it was amazing. Why not watch it once more on the big screen? We also have a Christmas set revenge thriller from John Woo. It's called Silent Night. In limited release, this is one I'm definitely eager about Eileen, a 60-set drama from director William Oldroyd. He made Lady Macbeth and Hathaway and Thomason McKenzie star in that one. Finnish director Aki Karasmaki is back after six years with a film called Fallen Leaves, Josh, that I actually just caught up with earlier today as we're recording this. If, if you're in a place that's playing Fallen Leaves, and here's the thing, you can still plan whatever night you want around it, 80 minutes. <laughs> I know it's 80 minutes long and quite good. You know what? That's that running time is why it won the Derby in our house the other night as well to check out. I'm glad you saw it too. I think we should talk about it on next week's show. Yeah. We're going to have that review roundup next week. Well, now I'm jumping ahead, but I think we should throw that one into the mix. Bradley Cooper's Leonard Bernstein biopic Maestro is out. And if you want to make up for all that extra viewing time. You know, 80 minutes just doesn't seem like enough of a cinematic experience. Well, I think you should enjoy Frederick Wiseman's Menu Plaisir, Les Trois Gros. Menu Plaisir, Les Trois Gros. I had to do it a second time. I just had to say <laughs> I didn't know if you were correcting yourself there or just relishing uh, kind of. in the title. <laughs> I think I said it about the same, but it just needed some more oomph because I really have been practicing it about twice a day since I saw this movie. It is a Frederick Wiseman movie. It's a four-hour immersive documentary about this incredible 
culinary institution really in France. And it's it's a remarkable film if you do have a chance to see it playing at the Siskel Film Center, I believe, in Chicago. You really should check it out. Hirokazu Kureda, another master auteur, has a film playing this weekend. This is also at the Siskel Monster. So it just reminds me, seeing some of these titles, how much viewing we still have left to do here before we fill out our Chicago Film Critics ballots and do our top 10 show. No kidding. You could say the same, although I think this one you've already seen, Todd Haynes, May, December. On Netflix now, I need to catch that one, and maybe we'll touch on that next week as well. So as we said, a review roundup next week. We're not going to necessarily go long on these films, though usually when we say that, we break that promise. But I think we have enough films we're going to get to. We'll we'll spend a few minutes on each. We'll talk a little Napoleon. We'll talk May-December. We'll talk Hayao Miyazaki's new one, The Boy and the Heron, which I've seen. We've both seen Fallen Leaves from Karasmaki. So we have at least those four titles in the mix. We'll see what other viewing we get in, Josh, over the weekend. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogeren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistants are Betty Lavendero and Veronica Phillips. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.